left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. When I get into business with somebody, I want to like that person. And you're going to be in this deal, presumably for two to 10 years. So if you're going to have ongoing communications with them, depends on what kind of relationship you have with them, whether it's via text or phone call or email or none of the above. For me, there's a lot of deals to invest in out there. So I want to invest with somebody that I actually like and I have a good gut feeling about because there's a lot of folks. I'm in a a few different businesses as well. And you kind of just get that feeling about people that, you know what I mean? It's deep in the pit of your stomach. You're like, there's something off from the way that he's talking versus the way that I feel about them. And that's usually something you need to trust. That's your gut instinct telling you that they're not being 100% transparent with you. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, this is Ryan Steig, one of the co-founders of Left Field Investors, and you are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really excited today to have Seth Bradley with us. He's a real estate entrepreneur and an expert at creating passive income while working as a highly paid, busy professional. He's closed billions of dollars in real estate transaction as a real estate attorney, investor, and broker. Seth is the managing partner of Law Capital Partners, which is a private equity firm focused on value-add real estate acquisitions and development. So Seth, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, thanks so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to it as well. And so the first question we always ask is, what's your journey? How did you get to where you are now, an attorney, a syndicator, into real estate? How did you find all of this and what was that journey like? I'll take it back pretty far, so feel free to stop me. I don't want to go on too far, but it took me a while to figure this game out. I mean, I started out thinking that I wanted to be a doctor. I grew up in a blue collar family. My mom's a retired school teacher. My dad's a retired coal miner. And it was kind of just instilled in me from the very beginning to work hard and trade your time for dollars. And what's the best way that you can produce income by working? So to me growing up, I thought, well, what's the best possible job that I could get? And to me, it was to become a doctor. So that's where I started. So I went to med school, went through all that, went for a year and a half before I finally decided this is not for me. And I dropped out. I literally got up in the middle of class and walked out because I just mentally I'd had it. I was like, I know this is not what I want to do. 
So I just left and obviously a big decision and lots of hard conversations to have with the dean and my parents and everyone else, but ultimately it ended up being the right decision. But at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went ahead and started getting my MBA because I knew I was interested in business and I figured that would apply to anything. So I got my MBA and after I completed that, I went ahead and went to law school. And that's where I kind of got my footing because I saw that even if I didn't want to stay in the law, I could use that to be an entrepreneur and to start my own businesses. And just the knowledge that I would gain from being an attorney would kind of give me a leg up on a lot of other folks. Interesting. So what happened then? Now you're an attorney. How did you find real estate? I love the part. First, I want to backtrack a minute. I love the part about trading time for money. And you figured out that medical school is a place to go for that. But the courage to stop and say, you know what, this isn't for me. Before we go on to where you are now in the real estate stuff, how did you get the courage? Because once you're in something like that, it's incredibly hard to backtrack and say, you know what, sunk cost, I'm leaving, I'm doing something different. Most people just plow on through and then work for the next 20 years miserably. <laughs> right. It is. I mean, it was tough. It was a really tough decision. You know, I finished my first year. I knew towards the end of the first year that it wasn't for me. But I took that summer and I started looking around. I'm like, well, what can I do? Do I want to just finish and then figure it out? Do I want to transfer over to something that's going to take a little bit less time, maybe to dental school or something like that, where I can still make good money, but it's going to be less years taken away from my life? Honestly, I didn't figure it out. So I started my second year. And finally, it just got to the point where I said, this is not what I want. This is just not where I'm going to be. I know that it took a lot to get here. But at some point in time, I've got to make the right decision for myself not necessarily for other people and what other people expect. So it did take a good bit of courage and a good bit of gumption just to say, you know what, let's figure this out, especially with no contingency plan, right? Yeah. I think I can relate to a lot of people right now that they have a W-2 and they know they don't want to do that. Maybe they're investing passively to try to buy back some of that time, or maybe they're starting a side hustle and trying to make that into their main hustle. And sometimes you've got to take that leap of faith. Like sometimes if it's always a side hustle, it's always going to be a side hustle until you just say, I'm going to fully commit 100%. And then you can actually take that and take it to the next level. That's well said. And, you know, I think it must have been incredibly hard to stop med school in the middle of med school. But I think it's probably easier to do it then than be 15 years into a medical school career or a doctor career, right? And then you're like, quit now? What? So I think more people need to, when they're in that space, just think, hey, is this where I really want to be? So then you got your MBA, you got your law degree. Why real estate? Well, luckily, you know, I've always been interested in real estate. So when I started practicing as an attorney, I got into real estate. So I started off as a real estate attorney, and then I brought in the securities piece a little bit later. So real estate has always been part of my practice from day one. And then again, I said, I've always been interested in real estate. I mean, as soon as I got that first big law firm job, I house hacked into a duplex as soon as I could afford a house payment. My wife and I lived in one half, we rented out the other and that paid our mortgage and kind of that bigger pockets type of mentality. That's how I got started reading bigger pockets and reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad and some of that kind of stuff and got into residential real estate. I mean, started buying single family properties, small multifamilies, one to four units, flipped a few properties, that sort of thing. Until I kind of got to the point where sometimes you get lost in the woods. I'm closing these $100 million deals for other people. And then I'm sitting here messing around with single family houses one at a time or fix and flips and dealing with these contractors that'll screw you over for $5,000. And I just kind of had an epiphany. I was like, what are you doing, man? Like you're helping these people close these deals. You need to figure out how to get on that side of the table, how to get on the equity side of the table. 
that was kind of a mindset shift. Sometimes you just get stuck in that, that small mindset. So for me, I just had to take a step back and look and say, I'm sophisticated enough to be able to close these larger deals for other people. Why can't I do it for myself? And that's when I started actually looking into syndications. I was familiar with it, obviously, but I didn't know from an operator perspective. I only knew from a attorney perspective. And those are two different ways, two different lenses to see it. So I started talking to people, networking, figuring out how I could make my first move. And I was told time after time, invest passively first, see how it goes, see how you're treated as a passive investor so you can learn that perspective. And then if you like it and you still want to make the transition over to active, then you can do that. If you don't, which a lot of people, they're like, that's a lot of work. I'm just going to keep investing passively. You can just keep doing what you're doing and invest passively. So I did that. I invested passively in a number of deals and eventually made my way over to the active side. So now I do active and passive investing. Interesting. You know, it's funny. You're probably the first lawyer I've heard say they found syndications from watching their clients. I hear that all the time from accountants and CPAs where they see their wealthy clients and they see all the money they're making from real estate. And then they kind of go, oh, maybe I should look into real estate and financial advisors have that same path as well. So I think some of those professions, you kind of stumble into it. And it's funny, people said invest passively first. I did the same thing. I wanted to be a syndicator and I didn't even invest passively yet. I just went to a seminar on syndication. I'm like, nope, I want to be on the passive (laughs) side. So that was pretty easy for me. So talk about your legal background. How does that help you as a syndicator, as an actual operator of these deals? Obviously, when you were working on the legal side, you knew all of that stuff. And so you got to see the syndications in action. But how does it help you become a better syndicator to have a legal background? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just comment real quick on first time you heard that from an attorney. I think that's because most attorneys, obviously, securities is a very specialized type of law. So there's not a ton of securities attorneys. There's more, let's say, real estate attorneys. There's more corporate attorneys. But then those corporate attorneys, only a small subsection of those folks are actually securities attorneys. And even a smaller portion do real estate because there's other types of securities. So there's not going to be too many people that kind of get exposure to those types of clients to where they're like, hey, maybe I should do that. Well, that's one benefit right there of being an attorney is being exposed to those deals, seeing the liabilities, seeing the risks, seeing deals through that lens, and also seeing kind of the results of things that you shouldn't be doing and what can happen if things go wrong. So that has helped me immensely. And it's also helped me get my foot in the door, honestly, with a lot of well-seasoned syndicators on the operating side. Because just by being secured as attorney, they're like, oh, you're sophisticated. You know what I'm talking about. We speak the same language. And me as a starting off trying to get to that active side, it was easy for me to kind of get my foot in the door because I already knew the language. I knew people in the industry and knew how these deals worked. And so you must see in your role as both an operator, syndicator, and as an attorney, you must see a bunch of deals and a bunch of different types of operations So what do you think some of the big issues in passive real estate investing today are either problems or opportunities? Sure. I mean, something that's been prevalent, obviously, I'm not going to speak on specific folks, but you've seen it as well as I have that it's just been an explosion in the space the last, like, let's say five years or so. So you have all these new people that are coming onto the space. They watch a YouTube video, they take a course, they do something like that. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, I'm a syndicator. I'm going to raise capital. I'm going to do all these things but they have no track record. They have no experience. A lot of them don't even have a business background. And that's fine as far as you can get experience, but you've got to start somewhere. But the thing is, if you're going to be that person, that beginner that's going to jump right into raising a million dollars or raising $10 million, which is really difficult to do, 
you need to find teammates. You need to find people with a track record, people that can show you the way. And a lot of times that's not happening. A lot of times it's people that are just starting. This is their first deal and they are the lead sponsor and they don't know anything about anything. I mean, lots of times they don't even realize that they're selling a security. They don't realize that there are rules to raising capital and you cannot just take somebody's money and put it into your deal. There are rules and regulations you have to follow in order to do something like that because there are protections for investors and they don't even know that those exist. There's countless times where I just kind of peruse like different Facebook groups and things like that and go to in-person meetups and people just have no clue about any securities laws or that there's any laws in place at all. The security stuff and the SEC stuff, all that just, it's complicated. And that's why we have attorneys because I don't want to jump into any of that stuff. So do you see that as getting in the way or is that a problem for passive investors if the deal they're investing in isn't properly structured or is that more of a problem for the operator? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different things. I mean, the operator's inexperience is obviously an issue for passive investors. I mean, if you're a new passive investor, I mean, a lot of the folks listening to your podcast are probably pretty seasoned or they've invested in a few deals, so they know what to look for. They ask the right questions. But a lot of these folks, this might be their first passive investment. And if they're investing in a deal for the first time with a brand new syndicator who has not operated a deal and doesn't really have a track record, that's obviously a risky deal. I mean, there's a lot of risk on the table for someone who's just starting out. And a lot of times you just don't realize that because it's your first deal and you don't know any better. It just happens all the time. Now, from a syndicator perspective, also risky because if you're not following the right rules and the right laws and you're not aware and you didn't hire a securities attorney to get involved, then you're putting yourself at risk for, well, if you tank that deal, what's going to happen? You're going to get sued is what's going to happen. And I've actually seen... I won't say I've seen it, but I have heard that there are, I'll call it predatory passive investors that look for syndicators that don't know the laws and how to raise capital the correct way. And they'll get involved in those deals because they know on the back end, if they get screwed and they lose their money, they can sue them because they didn't raise capital the correct way. Again, I haven't seen that firsthand, but I have heard that can happen, wow. which is very interesting. It sounds pretty risky to me from a passive investor perspective too, but pretty interesting take, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think I would just prefer to find good operators and invest with them, but okay. <laughs> so you're an attorney. I cannot have you on this show without asking a couple of these questions. Otherwise, my audience will leave me. So the operating agreement, the PPM, and the subscription documents, those are the three typical documents you get in a syndication. The one thing I do is anything in capital letters, I ignore. That's probably not the best strategy, but that's kind of one way that I get through these. So tell me, what do I need to look for in each of those documents? I don't want to read the whole thing. I want to read some paragraphs here and there. What are the top things I need to look for in each of those documents? Yeah, I mean, I think taking all three as a whole, just always understand that the operating agreement is the legally binding document. Well, the subscription agreement is as well, but the operating agreement is the legal document that will supersede everything else. So your PPM it's a legal document, but it's sort of a marketing piece. It should be written in relatively plain language so that you understand from a passive investor side what you're getting yourself into. It's going to lay out all the deal parameters, what kind of projected returns you're going to get, who the operators are, what's their track record, what's the waterfall look like, all those sorts of things. The point of the PPM is to explain the operating agreement in plain language. It really should break down what you're supposed to know in the operating agreement to a certain extent in plain language so you can understand what kind of investment you're getting yourself into. So PPM, 
to me, from an attorney perspective, it's not as important as the operating agreement. Because if there are things that are different in the PPM than the operating agreement, it's a little bit of an issue for the sponsor because if something happens down the line and they get sued, an investor might say, well, the PPM says this and your operating agreement says this. I went by what you told me in the PPM. You're going to have a little bit of an issue there. But what controls is what's in the operating agreement. So the things to look for in the operating agreement include your voting rights, typically from a past investor standpoint. You don't really want voting rights, first of all, because you don't want to have that liability. That kind of protects you as a past investor. And that's why when or if we would get the group would get sued or something would happen at the property, the management gets sued, but the past investors don't because they're shielded from liability. But you need to see what your voting rights are. They should be limited. Maybe they're limited to voting out the manager if they're not doing a very good job. Now, it might be a super majority. It might be 67% or it might be 75% something like that. But there should be some way to get the manager out if they're doing a terrible job. Now, it has to be a really bad job or like fraud or misrepresentation or something like that. Some sponsors actually build into their documents that you can vote on a refinance or a sale. Now, I don't suggest that to the sponsors that I represent because I want to keep control over something that big, but you can look for something like that. So voting rights are something you should definitely pay attention to. Another thing you should check out are capital calls. If there is a capital call, what are your rights as a passive investor? Is it mandatory or isn't it? And then who decides that? Does the manager decide that or is there a vote? Again, it goes back to the voting piece. And if you're going to have to pony up more money just to stay in the deal or to keep your equity percentage, that's pretty important. So you need to know the rules behind that. And then the third part is how much you pay and how do you get paid? Make sure the fees line up in the operating agreement with what your understanding of the deal is. And the waterfall is really important. How do you get paid and in what order? So after that primary debt, if there is any, who gets paid what? Do you get that preferred return before or after, let's say, even an asset management fee, something like that? Like who gets paid what and in what order? Because the waterfall piece can get a little bit complicated. And in my opinion, that's the one piece that you may want to have your attorney take a look at just to give a quick once over to be like, what does this actually mean and when do I get paid? If you're listening to this podcast, then you're probably already thinking about ways to generate income passively and to reduce your tax burden. But did you know that you can retain more of your W-2 income by investing in oil and gas? As you might know, my income is generally passive, but if you're a high wage earner who still gets a large portion of your income from a W-2 job, this investment opportunity could help you hold on to more of your hard-earned money, which means you have the chance to make more passive investments. Billy Keels and the team at First Generation Capital Partners are experienced with investing in this sector, and they have a free download available for our listeners who want to learn more. To find out just how much you could save by investing in oil and gas, head to firstgencp.com slash LFI pay less tax and download your free guide. This is Zach Hapsensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E 48 equity.com backslash invest. That's fantastic stuff because I always look at the PPM and the items that you said are the things that I generally look at. So I was feeling pretty good about that, but I don't necessarily look at those in the operating agreement. So that's huge for me to change how I'm doing things. So that's fantastic information. 
I'd like now to pivot from the attorney that we were talking to and talk to the uh, operator syndicator. What kind of asset classes are you focused on currently? Yeah, I mean, traditionally multifamily. I love multifamily as an asset class, as a long-term play. But again, going back to how this syndication industry has exploded in the last five years, multifamily has gotten very crowded, really crowded in all the good markets, all the decent markets, even the bad markets. So it's tough to find good deals. So when you start seeing projected returns that look similar to the ones that you saw, let's say three or four years ago, that's really when you need to dig into that sponsor's underwriting and see how, because there's no way. Right. A deal that you invested in four years ago should have had much higher projected returns than let's say today. So multifamily traditionally, and we're always underwriting multifamily deals and trying to make those pencils, but they're few and far between at this point. We've pivoted to a few other asset types that we really like, including RV parks, where the spread is much higher. We took down a few of those last year and you have less competition, bigger spreads, and it can be a long-term play too because they cash flow so much. So certain investors, I've seen kind of a mindset shift where originally it was, I need my money back as soon as possible. So like if you can renovate it and lease it up and sell it in two or three years, give me my money back. But there are other investors that are now starting to see like that's even from a passive side, it's still a lot of work to go out and find a new deal and vet a sponsor and vet the deal. Why don't you find me a deal where I can just stay in it for 10 years or an infinite amount of time? Those deals and those types of passive investors looking for those deals are more often seen than they used to be. So these RV parks really fit that bill because they cash flow so much. And it's not quite as dependent on this value add play to make them pencil. Talk about the RV parks. How do you go from multifamily to RV parks? And what do you tell your investors that, hey, I'm going into this, what's your expertise? What we always say is we don't want to be anybody's guinea pig. So if you're switching asset classes, I'll see you later. I'll come back after you have a track record. So how do you get over that hump? And then also, why do RV parks have such heavy cash flow? Yeah, so you partner with people with a track record. So you find experts in that field. And RV parks are a very specialized industry. So if you talk to a novice, they'll kind of lump in RV parks and mobile home parks together. But they are two totally different asset types, depending on the type of RV park you take down. So you partner with experts. So we'll either, when I'm on a deal, I either have someone on the team who has the experience, who has that track record in RV parks specifically, or if that's not available and we still find a great deal, where can we find that track record of success? Where can we find that expertise? There are RV park consultants that you can pay to be part of your team, either by the hour, or you can pay them kind of like a small ongoing fee to consult with you when you're doing like, if you're going to build out some new sites, then they'll help you out, figure out the layout. If you're trying to optimize your daily rates and your weekly rates, they'll help you optimize those things. So a lot of real estate does overlap and a lot of that same knowledge applies to multifamily and RV parks. You just need to find someone that has that, that specialized piece to take you to that next level. I was just going to ask, what are the markets that you look at for RV parks? Are they similar to the multifamily markets you're looking in or are they different? They're different. They're very different. So depending on what type of park you're looking for. There's long-term parks, which are kind of month-to-month tenants, which do start looking a lot more like a mobile home park. And then there's parks that are called transient parks that are more geared towards daily and weekly rentals where people are either passing through or maybe they're spending their vacation there. So we look for a park that might be a long-term park right now, but has short-term potential because it's almost like taking a, let's say, single-family long-term rental house and turning it into an Airbnb. 
your rates are going to go way, way up. Instead of charging $300 a month to park your RV for a month, you can charge $50 a day. But the key to that is demand. I mean, you can build an RV park just about anywhere. So you got to be really careful when you're adding sites or you're buying an RV property. You got to figure out what's the demand in the area. So you need to have some sort of a draw. Like that's the big thing is if I turn this into a nightly or weekly park, why are people going to pay to be here? It can be something as small as, let's say, an Indian casino or some sort of body of water, a lake, an ocean, anything that's close that's going to draw people to stay for a week or two weeks or a few nights. That's really what you look for. And how do you figure out if there's demand? You have to see what's around you. I mean, you, honestly, you have to go visit this park. I mean, it's not one of those properties where you can just, oh, well, I know what Nashville looks like. I've been in Nashville 10 times. And then this park's kind of on the west side of Nashville or something. You've got to go visit the park because you've got to see what's immediately around it. You've got to visit the other RV parks that are near it to see what the competition is charging, see what the conditions of their park are, things like that. So to gauge the demand, you can do it that way by going and seeing if the other parks are full around it. And the other thing you can do is you can put out an ad is what you can do. So you put out an ad on, let's say, Facebook or Instagram or Google and just kind of gauge what kind of demand you get from those ads for your park. You almost pretend like you own it already and do it for a couple of weeks and see what kind of demand you get. Interesting. So pivoting again from the RV parks, one of the most important things and what we really focus on at Left Field Investors is finding quality sponsors, operators to invest with. It's more important than the deal, mostly, because if you don't have a quality partner, it doesn't matter how good the deal is. That's kind of how we think of it. So how do you vet a sponsor to make sure they're experienced and knowledgeable? I think the first step, especially, again, because there's so many new sponsors involved, Figure out who you're in bed with or who you're going to get in bed with. You need to figure out if they're actually the lead sponsor or if they're, let's say, they're just a capital raiser. And I don't like to just say just capital raiser. It's so important. But let's say they're not actually going to be the on-the-ground operator. So figure out who's going to be your on-the-ground operator. And that's the person you really need to vet. You need to figure out what their track record is and follow up with that track record. I mean, go to the property records and see if they really own it or one of the entities that they own really owns it. And I think that that's what makes a group like yours so powerful, because even though there are so many new people coming into play right now, everybody knows everybody and everybody knows somebody that's invested in somebody else's deal. And a bad reputation travels really quickly here. So I think networking and I think making sure you have a call with the person's actually going to be operating the deal or their, at least their investor relations team to see if you get a good feeling about are they sophisticated? Are they doing what they say they're going to do? and that sort of thing with their other properties. Interesting. And then, so I've heard you say that it's important to like the sponsor, the person you're investing with. And my question is, why is that important? If they're making me money, do I care if they're a jerk? I suppose not to a certain extent. I mean, ultimately you want them to make you money, but I look at it like a business deal. And when I get into business with somebody, I want to like that person. And you're going to be in this deal, presumably for two to 10 years. So if you're going to have ongoing communications with them, depends on what kind of relationship you have with them, whether it's via text or phone call or email or none of the above. For me, there's a lot of deals to invest in out there. So I want to invest with somebody that I actually like and I have a good gut feeling about because there's a lot of folks, I'm in a, a few different businesses as well. And you kind of just get that feeling about people that, you know what I mean? It's deep in the pit of your stomach. You're like, there's something off from the way that he's talking 
versus the way that I feel about them. And that's usually something you need to trust. That's your gut instinct telling you that they're not being 100% transparent with you. Yeah, I think that's great advice because you don't want to do business with people that you don't like. It just makes it uncomfortable and difficult. And as you said, there are plenty of operators out there. And we tell people if someone's offering a guarantee or if certain conditions exist, just move on and go to the next person because there's plenty out there. And it's the same with if you're dealing with somebody and they have great returns and a great business, but they're just jerks and you don't want to deal with them, then why would you invest your money with them? So I completely agree with that. That's awesome advice. So I want to talk a little bit about the debt markets. I know that you're not really finding multifamily deals right now. So maybe you're concentrating a little bit more on the RV parks. How does the debt work for RV parks and how do you see the debt changing in the future? Yeah, I mean, just to comment on the RV parks, it's very similar. There are less banks that are willing to finance RV parks. So typically we're finding community banks and smaller local banks to finance those, but you're still going to get 60 to 75% debt on those properties. So it's still pretty good, which was a surprise to me. I thought we were going to have to leverage it much lower, let's say like 50% or something like that. But I was surprised. You just have to find the right broker that's specific to the RV park industry because they know what small lenders will loan on those types of parks. Just generally speaking on the debt market, it's a mess right now. That's what's making these deals not work right now because the debt is so expensive and seller's pricing is not adjusted enough. It has adjusted, but it just hasn't adjusted enough to make up for that those high interest rates. So the only deals that I see getting done on a regular basis right now as we speak and towards the end of the first quarter of 2023 is loan assumptions. So loan assumptions or seller financing or some combination of that because unless the seller is in a really bad place and they're willing to discount the property much more than they want to, then these deals are just not going through right now. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Loan assumptions are when you assume the loan of the seller and seller financing then is when the seller basically acts as the bank, just so everyone understands what we're talking about. So talking about banks, is the Silicon Valley bank just folded over the weekend, I guess, or maybe last week? There's other mid-major banks that are in trouble or have also had the same issue. Is that going to affect, do you think, mortgage rates or operators? I mean, when you take out a loan, if the bank goes out of business, I don't know how that works. I guess maybe you don't owe them the money anymore. So maybe that's a good thing. It doesn't seem like it's ever a good thing to have a bank go out of business. So how do you think that's going to affect debt markets and anything like that? Well, I don't think it's going to have a massive impact, but it certainly has a negative impact just on the general feeling about the markets. Like when you start seeing these banks go under or there's trouble, even though SVB might be a one-off, it's still one more indicator to the market, to people, to investors that are like, maybe I should hold on to my cash. Maybe I shouldn't be investing. Maybe I should stockpile my money instead of keeping it moving. So it certainly impacts everything, including commercial real estate. Right. So the last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast you listen to? And you cannot use the Passive Income Attorney podcast because that's your podcast and that's going to be in the show notes anyway. So what's another podcast you like to listen to? Yeah, the one at the top of my list right now is The Game by Alex Hormozzi. So it's not a real estate podcast. It's a business podcast, but he's an incredible guy. He started, he's a gym guy and he's kind of developed into this overall just business genius and it's incredible. I would recommend that to everyone out there to give it a listen. Awesome. I've never heard of that one. So that's two days in a row that I've gotten new podcasts to listen to from podcast guests. So that's fantastic. Thank you for that. And then finally, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way of doing that? And if there's anything you want to share with the community, this would be a great time to do that as well. 
Absolutely. I'm all over social media, so you can find me anywhere. You can either look me up, Seth Bradley, or the Passive Income Attorney. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all the above. So I'm pretty easy to find. Feel free to reach out, email me. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me, Seth at lawcapitalpartners.com. And I do want to present your listeners with a special announcement. I've got a new program called Passive Income Pro. You can find more information at passiveincomepro.io. It's a course and mastermind for specifically for passive investors. So you can actually get up to speed on how to invest in a syndication in four weeks or really less if you want to. It teaches you all the stuff that you need to know and not the stuff that you don't because a lot of the information out there is geared towards active investors and sponsors and active investors that want to learn how to raise capital or how to find a deal and that sort of thing. This is geared specifically for passive investors. So you can find that at PassiveIncomePro.io and we have a 10% off code. You can use the code LEFTFIELD, all one word. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. We appreciate that. And all of that will be in the show notes. Seth, this has been fantastic. We appreciate having you. It's kind of like we had two guests today because we had the attorney start out and we had the syndicator finish up. So that was fantastic. Thank you for being on the show. All right, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. Well, that was cool talking to Seth. It was like talking to two people at once because he has two roles as an attorney and as an operator. That's awesome. Starting out, his family taught him to trade time for money as so many people did. And he figured out pretty quickly when he was in med school that that wasn't what he wants to do. And we talked about his courage to change. I imagine that was really hard to go through a year and a half of med school and then say, nope, not for me. And so I just think that's awesome that he was able to get out and then go do other stuff and find his niche and find what he wanted to do in real estate. So that was awesome. And there's so many rules to raising capital and I think that's what makes being an attorney at the same time you're doing this capital raising and being a syndicator. I think that just gives him an advantage because he knows what the rules are so he can make sure that he's following them. But he can also be a little bit more aggressive because he knows the rules and he knows when he will and won't get himself into trouble. So I kind of like that balance there. And the conversation about the operating agreement, I always look at the PPM. I kind of glance over the operating agreement. I am not the most thorough on this stuff. Admittedly, I should be better at it. 
but we all have our strengths and that is not one of mine. But now knowing that the operating agreement really is the main thing to look at, usually I go and check the PPM for a few of those items that he talked about, capital calls, voting, and the waterfall. Well, now I'll just check both, right? I'll check the operating agreement and the PPM and make sure both of those match each other and they match the pitch deck come from the operator. So that was really helpful for me. And I also liked his answer when I talked to him about changing asset classes because we don't like to be guinea pigs. And if we are guinea pigs and we go in with our eyes wide open, I like to do it at a lower minimum than they usually offer. But what he said is be very open and easy about it. Just partner with an expert. Makes sense to me, right? If you want to get into RV parks and you're not an RV park operator, you don't have any experience, rather than just go trying to be an RV park operator, hire a consultant, partner with someone that has experience. I just love that attitude. And it wasn't like it was uh, some big guess. It was just like, seemed like obvious. Yeah, you just partner with an expert. So I really like Seth. It was great talking to him. We're going to see if there's ways we can do business with each other moving forward. That's it for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.